This is an ABC podcast. Hello there. Welcome to Between the Lines. Tom Switzer from RN here. Now, later on in the show, Catherine Belton on her new book, How Putin's People Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. Three decades ago, the collapse of Soviet communism appeared to usher in a new era of peace and democracy. According to then-President George H.W. Bush, The Soviet Union itself is no more. This is a victory for democracy and freedom. And for a time in the 1990s, under Boris Yeltsin, it looked like Russia would indeed become a viable liberal democratic state. Reality in post-Soviet Russia has proven very different. Later on, we'll learn how Vladimir Putin and his old KGB comrades took control of Russia's natural resources and extended Moscow's reach and influence across the US and Europe. But first to Japan. Well, Shinzo Abe was Japan's longest serving leader and he surprised the world last week with his resignation. Now, Abe had been in power at an earlier stage in 2006-07, and that first turn was cut short by the same illness that prompted him to leave power in late August. Now, when he departed politics the first time, this is in 2007, virtually all the experts, they all wrote Abe's political obituary. However, one Australian diplomat who has followed Japanese politics closely for half a century, he didn't write off Abe. Indeed, he predicted a remarkable political comeback and he kept in touch with Abe during his wilderness years. When Abe shocked the political world by returning to power five years later in 2012, that Australian, as it happens, he'd become our ambassador to Japan and relations between our two nations became closer. Bruce Miller was Australia's ambassador to Japan from 2011 to 2017. Bruce, welcome to IRN. Uh, lovely to be here. Lovely to join you. Now, tell us more about the nature of your relations with Shinzo Abe. Well, look, thanks for the very generous comments you just made, but I was just doing my job, and that is getting to know everyone that matters and bringing influence to bear to advance Australian interests. Now, I had known... Shinzo Abe, uh, over previous postings in Japan. I've had a 40-year association with the country. But I suppose it was when I arrived back in Japan in 2011 uh, as ambassador uh, that I actually uh, sought him out at a time when he was uh, down and out. He was, as you said, he'd stepped down for the prime ministership in 2007 and no one thought he was going to be PM again. Uh, now, I went around calling on all sorts of people in my first few months in the job as ambassador. And one of them was Shinzo Abe. Talked to him quite a bit over the year or two between uh, my arrival and him returning to the prime ministership. And uh, we were able to cover all sorts of things in those conversations, uh, you know, bilateral relations, a free trade agreement, trans-Pacific partnership, um, even things like immigration and how to handle the US and how to handle China. Now, that was a golden opportunity for a for a diplomat, but as I say, it was uh, what any of us would do presented with those uh, those very same circumstances. Yeah, political and, uh, comebacks are a fascinating story. You think of Churchill, yeah. Menzies, Nixon, Howard, Netanyahu, and of course, Dr. Mahatia. What kind of characteristics did Abe display that made you think he could defy the odds and mount a spectacular mm, comeback? Mm. Yeah. Look, I think it was a capacity for introspection, for, for, for reflection, and for pragmatism, to actually learn from where he'd gone wrong and realise it was actually okay to change your mind about how you do things. 
to show that sort of flexibility. And, you know, he reflected long and hard after his failed attempt at Prime Minister as to what had gone wrong. And I think he, he realised he needed to get the economy right. He didn't pay that much attention in 2006 7 He also realised, I think, he needed to have the right people around him to get things done, even if they weren't long-standing loyalists. And that's where he'd gone wrong in 2006. Mm. He had too many loyalists and not enough competent people around him. And I think the last thing he realised is he needed to centralise more decision-making in the Prime Minister's office. Because, mm -hmm. uh, again, he wasn't in con full control of things uh, first time round. Those would be the three things I'd say. Okay, yeah. now let's turn to his record in power in Japan. Now, this was the Wall Street Journal editorial page, quote, Abe's eight years in office were characterised by his multi-front campaign to turn Japan into a more normal country. Now, they go on to talk about domestic and foreign policy. Is that your sense too, Bruce? Well, look, I prefer not to use the term normal country. It was coined by one of Abe's political enemies, it isn't used much in, inside Japan. Mm. Americans like to use it, but it's un undoubtedly true he's done an awful lot across the board, uh, as the Wall Street Journal said, to change Japan. I mean, his, his domestically at least, uh, you know, his abenomics have made a real difference. Now, you can't call abenomics an unalloyed success at all. Uh, deregulation has been slow and monetary policy under Kuroda at the Bank of Japan, which is another arrow in the in the, of the three arrows in Abenomics, hasn't achieved its goals of 2% inflation or let alone has Japan achieved its goal of 2% growth. But you'd find, you'll find that most senior Japanese business people will say that Abe's stewardship economically has been good enough. And look, by modern international standards, the, the Japanese government doesn't have a bad record, frankly. Every year there's been a signature economic reform. We've had big trade liberalisation, We've had reform of the agriculture sector. Uh, we've also had some improvements in corporate governance, more independent directors, all that sort of thing. There's been some progress on female participation in the workforce and more recently a, a more organised program of foreign labour mobility. I mean, dare I call it immigration, although that isn't the terminology used by the Japanese government. Now, those things, the, the female participation in the workforce and uh, immigration... They're only starts. They should have been started 30 years ago. Mm. Uh, demography doesn't catch up on you quickly. It's a long, it's a long-term process. But it's still a great thing that Abe has kicked off with those uh, over the last 10 years with those uh, those policies. Yeah, well, you mentioned um, immigration and demography. Uh, I was struck by mm. something that Lee Kuan Yew, Singapore's founding father, um, shortly mm. before he died, uh, he, he made the remarks that, uh, you know, the most serious challenge facing Japan is demographic. Uh, you know, its population is rapidly ageing and it's not replacing itself. And uh, Lee Kuan Yew's argument was, and this is not a minority view, this is probably the conventional wisdom at least, that all of Japan's other problems, you know, a stagnating economy, weak political leadership, they pale in comparison. And Lee Kuan Yew made the point, Bruce, if it's the young that keeps the economy going and Japan lacks young people, Lee Kuan Yew says, if I were Japanese and I could speak English, I would probably choose to emigrate. Now, that's Lee Kuan Yew. What you, what's your response to people like Lee Kuan Yew who are pessimists about Japan? Well, look, he, he has a point, of course. Uh, demography is going in the wrong direction for Japan, but Japan is not alone in that, of course. Uh, China is a classic case. going that way yeah. too. And, uh, but look, you know, it's a good thing, surely, that 
countries have a lot a long life expectancy. I mean, one of the problems for Japan is it's got a lot of old people. That's because they've got the longest life expectancy in the world. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's because they've got a good medical system. Now, that's a good thing. Uh, now, of course, it does mean that not enough, not enough young people are being born and growing up and working. Uh, uh, that's undoubtedly true. But if you step back and you look at Japan and you look at a country with high levels of social trust, low crime, a pretty damn good quality of life, and immense private and corporate government savings, even though there's a lot of government debt, and again, Japan is hardly alone in that now, uh, you can see some real advantages and feel more optimistic. And look, Japanese young people aren't getting up and emigrating. It's too good at home. That's, 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 that's actually the comeback to Lee Kuan Yew's comment, frankly. Mm. Bruce Miller is my guest. He's a former Australian diplomat in Japan, where he's had multiple postings, including as our ambassador from 2011 to 2017. Now, during your tenure as ambassador, it's, it's widely believed that Australia's relations with Japan grew even closer. This, of course, coincided with a lot of the Abe era. Why is it the case, given that China has far surpassed Japan as our largest trade partner? How do you account for the increasingly uh, close relations between Tokyo and Canberra, Bruce? Well, look, it's um, well. First, it's certainly China has far surpassed Japan as a trading partner. Indeed, but the Japanese stock of investment in Australia still exceeds that of China, mm -hmm. as does, of course, that of the United States. And investment really matters; it mm -hmm. creates mm -hmm. jobs and keeps keeps the economy going round. But look, the the basic reason uh, for Australia and Japan becoming ever closer is that we've both had to deal with uh, a more powerful and a more aggressive China. We're both having to deal with the United States under both Obama and Trump mm -hmm. in their very different ways, of course, that is less willing to exercise global leadership in the way that we're used to. So that's pushed us together ever more. And because we've got similar political values, if I can put it that way, uh, democracy, uh, uh, commitment to the rule of law, it's relatively easy for us to do business together. Now, our successive prime ministers over the last number of years since uh, Abe became prime minister of Japan have each, in their own way, done pretty well in uh, developing the relationship with Abe and achieving things between Australia and Japan. I mean, Tony Abbott, the free trade agreement and uh, much more in the way of security cooperation. Malcolm Turnbull, uh, the most notable example is what we did with Japan on the Trans-Pacific Partnership. Uh, reviving it uh, after the Americans walked away. And Prime Minister Morrison, you know, the, the way that he and Mr Abe have worked together on bolstering the rules-based order, working closely to shape US views and those of other partners. So uh, uh, it's, um, it's not just me or my successor as ambassador in Tokyo, quite the contrary. It's the big forces in history, if you like, that are pushing Australia and Japan yeah, and you mentioned China. I mean, the conventional wisdom is that Abe has put Japan in pretty good stead as China more or less continues its regional expansionism. But he got off to a bit of a rocky start, uh, Abe, because uh, I think yeah. early on he visited the Yasukuni uh, Shrine. That was in 2013. That was controversial yeah. in both Beijing and Washington, wasn't it? Yeah, it's controversial. Anyway, Yasukuni Shrine is a, is a controversial place. Uh, he was always going to go there once as Prime Minister, though, given his background. He's a conservative uh, and nationalist uh, member of the Liberal Democratic Party. But where his pra pragmatism is cut in is that he only went once and uh, hasn't been back since. And you know, more broadly on China, he has negotiated 
I would say, from a position of, of firmness and of clarity in, in Japan's position on key issues of sovereignty, the territorial dispute in the, South, in the East China Sea, uh, the, uh, the interaction that takes place between the uh, Chinese and the Japanese militaries on the, uh, on the open seas, uh, uh, all of these areas. Uh, Abe has been very firm over a number of years. He hasn't backed down at all uh, uh, in the face of pressure from China to concede on these as the price for getting uh, leader-level contact again in 2014, 2015. If anything, uh, uh, because he was firm in that his approach to China, uh, he was able to normalise the relationship. And uh, I think that's uh, not a bad model to, uh, to apply. Bruce, thanks so much for enlightening RN listeners today. Pleasure. Bruce Miller, he was our ambassador in Japan during most of the Shinzo Abe era. You're listening to Between the Lines with Tom Switzer, making sense of Australia's place in the world. Have you heard about the thousands of protesters taking to the streets to protest against the autocratic president? No, I'm not referring to those protesters in Belarus against President Alexander Lukashenko. I mean the thousands of protesters in the far east of Russia who are demonstrating against President Vladimir Putin. The protesters are chanting, Putin, have some tea. Now, this, of course, is in relation to last month's suspected poisoning of Alexei Navalny. He's the leading opposition politician and anti-corruption activist. He fell gravely ill after drinking a cup of tea at an airport. Now, he remains in a medically induced coma in a Berlin hospital. In Kremlin, they're denying it's behind the poisoning. Still, the episode sheds light on the kind of regime Putin runs. Catherine Belton is author of Putin's People – how the KGB took back Russia and then took on the West. Catherine, welcome to ABC Radio. Hi, thanks so much for having me on. Now, before we address your book, let's start with Navalny. How do you account for his poisoning and why now? Yeah, I'm afraid it's a very uh, troubling sign of the thinking in the Kremlin. I think they've been watching in horror at the events in Belarus, where you've had a very apolitical population suddenly shed their fear and emerge out on the, onto the streets en masse and continue to do so now for uh, more than two weeks even though there's been sort of torture and beatings of protesters, they're still coming out. And this is against a president who, like Putin, is, is entering his sort of beyond the 20th year in power for Lukashenko. It, it's much longer. It's 24 years, but still he clings on. He uh, won, uh, he claims to have won the election last month, but everyone sees that that process is, is being rigged. And really, Putin is, is, is starting to to face similar challenges. He just won a nationwide vote, uh, which would ostensibly allow him to remain president until 2036. But he also faced widespread allegations. That vote was was rigged and uh, his popularity has been flagging because of, of what many see have seen as his botched handling of the pandemic. And as you mentioned in the intro, he's been facing unprecedented protests in Russia's Far East, which has really 
Russia's biggest so far and the and the longest running. They've been going on for more than six weeks and still the, the people are coming out. So I'm afraid uh, the Kremlin's hand in Navalny's poisoning is unfortunately all too clear because Navalny had not only been cheering on the protests in, in, in Belarus and he'd also been touring Siberia before the alleged poisoning. And in Siberia, he was preparing for quite important local elections. He was he was trying to kind of cultivate support for a raft of opposition candidates through a system of, of smart voting, which if successful would have undermined the Kremlin's hold on, on parliament uh, kind of across Russia. He, Navalny was tweeting, for instance, like, would you like uh, things here as they are in, in Belarus? Vote for these candidates in the local elections. He'd also been very vocal in his support for uh, strikes that had been occurring across Belarus. Uh, he'd said that this was really the way to kind of take the oxygen out of the, the dictatorship, out of the, the regime. And, and indeed, he'd hoped that such a practice could one day be repeated in Russia. Of course, Navalny, he's a very uh, famous and effective anti-corruption blogger, and everyone is pointing out that he has lots of enemies within the Russian elite. But unfortunately, in these cases, it, it's kind of pretty standard practice. If you're going to try and take out a very high-profile mm. opponent of the regime, then generally you have to have the nod from the number one, i.e. the president, in order to be able to act with impunity. So um, I'm afraid it's a very unfortunate uh, kind of set of okay, circumstances. Okay, so we've got parallels here between Lukashenko's rule in Belarus and Putin's rule mm. in Russia. You're suggesting that the Kremlin here is sending a very strong signal to Navalny so that, you know, other opposition figures should just back off and that the Kremlin is just increasingly paranoid. It's acting in with uh, impunity to protect its interests. That's your line. There are large protests in the far east in Russia. How much of a threat do they pose to Putin? I think they, you know, I think they're also watching with great concern. I mean, they haven't sort of uh, embarked on any ha heavy handed clampdown because I think uh, they view such actions as, as being counterproductive. And I think they're hoping that they will fizzle out by themselves. But so far, they haven't. They've been running for more than six weeks now, and people are still coming out against the Kremlin's heavy handed policies and in, in trying to assert and install its own leader in a region which has always been uh, quite independent and people are trying, starting to chafe at the, at the Kremlin's very heavy-handed tactics. They've been coming out in support of a local governor who was suddenly arrested on uh, charges. He was involved in a murder more than 20 years ago and nobody in the Kremlin seemed to be concerned until now. So, you know, um, I think that the Kremlin has been worried that the Far East, uh, although it's many, many miles away from the Kremlin that, that these protests could uh, spread across Russia, especially if uh, people are inspired by events in Belarus. And of course, Putin is heading into quite tricky territory. His own ratings did take a, a battering uh, earlier in the year over his botched handling of, of the coronavirus pandemic. He was very hands-off. He kind of disappeared and left it to regional governors and the rest of his government to manage. And um, people have also been sort of worried about the fallout on the economy. I think Russia is headed for a 6% recession this year and some fear 
here. It could be deeper. The government hasn't had the wherewithal to bail out any small and medium enterprises, which make up for about 25% of the country's GDP. It's not a lot, but it's still a significant chunk. Okay. And there have been fears that because of, of lower oil prices, that the government might also uh, stop being able to kind of uh, support some of the state enterprises as, as much as it has in the past. So Putin's really been entering and chartered territory for his presidency. He's been blessed for all these 20 years in power in a way because he had eight years of very high oil prices in his first two terms and then in 2011, 2012. But he kind of turned things around by annexing Crimea and this which was kind of uh, accompanied by a huge surge of patriotism. This was hugely popular with the Russian population. But really he's kind of running out of, of tricks mm. to play. And so Putin could face a period of greater unrest. My guest is Catherine Belton. She's the author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. Catherine lived in Moscow, Moscow as a journalist for 15 years, I think. Is that right, Catherine? 15 years? Yes, a very long time. Well, let's turn to your book. You talk about, quote, an alliance between the KGB and organised crime that was to expand its influence across Russia and later into Western markets and institutions. Tell us more about your thesis. I began uh, writing the book uh, really because I felt that we didn't uh, understand what had happened at the fall of the Soviet Union and how it was Putin came to power and how it was that the security services in Russia had r kind of been able to come back to power with, with such a vengeance. So I looked more closely at what, ha what had happened at the Soviet Union's fall and it became apparent that from kind of archives and documents and the work of prosecutors involved in investigations then that one arm of the KGB, the foreign intelligence arm, had been very active in trying to siphon out assets of out of the Soviet Union before its collapse. And indeed, some of them were on the side of the, the move to the market economy because they knew that the Soviet Union uh, would not be able to compete with the West under the conditions of a planned economy, that it just wasn't sustainable. So they really began preparing a long time before uh, the collapse of, of communism and they were moving out assets through webs of front men and also through organized crime, uh, many of whose members they'd recruited as they began the move unofficially at first uh, to the market through the black market. And some of these organized crime members, of course, uh, they like to move money out of Russia for their own benefit, but they also had this very symbiotic relationship with the KGB. They also... Uh, in St. Petersburg and in, in sort of as part of my investigation, it became very apparent that, that Putin and uh, the other former security service officials, the KGB men he was close with, were running this, the city essentially hand in hand with the city's most powerful organized crime group, the Tambov. And this also became kind of quite uh, a, 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 an emblematic for how uh, he was also to, to run the country later. So you see the beginnings really of, of how of his, his power structure really okay, so in, just to clarify here, in the 90s. Just to, yeah, exactly. So before Putin came to power, we had post-communist Russia. That was essentially an oligarchy. 20 years into his power, Russia really has no oligarchs, only wealthy servants of Putin and his circle. And your argument is that his KGB men, in a way, they served as a counterweight to Yeltsin's oligarchs and the rest is history. Now, I was struck by 
my passage in your book, Catherine, in your reading, quote, overt nationalism is nothing but a veneer. Now, in recent years on this program, uh, several guests, I think of Stephen Cohen from NYU, uh, Mary Dejewski from The Independent, a former Australian diplomat, Tony Kevin, uh, they argue uh, that context is everything, that in 2000, uh, after the misery and the humiliation of, um, of the Yeltsin years, uh, you know, this is when Putin came to power. This was a state that had collapsed twice in the 20th century, obviously in 1917 with the Russian Revolution, 1991 with the collapse of the Soviet Union. And Putin's mission, this is their argument, has been to rebuild Russia in a way that was modern so the state would not collapse again. What's wrong with that interpretation? There is nothing wrong with that interpretation because uh, to a certain degree, of course, uh, it's true. I think Putin and his uh, men, the KGB men that surround him, they see themselves as the saviors of Russia. They believe that they saved Russia from almost certain collapse under Yeltsin. They believed his policies to hand out freedom to, to the regions were, were, were surely going to lead to the internal collapse of the country that would follow on from the Soviet Union's collapse. Uh, but they were also kind of clinging uh, to this as, as a thesis because it was also a, an idea that also allowed them to to grab as, as much kind of power and assets as, as they could handle as well. I mean, Putin's security men essentially began taking over the country's economy, this most strategic sectors of the economy, chunk by chunk, precisely because they were justifying the asset grab by saying we must present, prevent the, the country's collapse. Uh, these independent oligarchs of the Yeltsin era, they're too beholden to the West. They're outside of a, our control. They command billions of dollars in oil revenue or other commodity revenues. So we must take control of them. Of course, uh, this was a period of, of great stability after all the chaos of the Yeltsin years and people's living standards really, really did rise. But this, unfortunately, was mostly due to the, the surge in oil prices then. Putin was really blessed by having oil prices rise from $15 at the beginning of his presidency to around 80 in, at one point in, in 2000, in early 2008. So he really did reap the benefits of that. But as soon as the, the oil price kind of stopped surging, you also saw this stagnation in the economy as a result of of his heavy-handed policies as a result of this kind of carte blanche that was given to the security services to begin taking over companies. No one, no business wants to invest when they know that they can be prey uh, to the Russian security services at any time when the Russian security services can demand kickbacks at any moment or they might decide to take over your business. There has been no real growth for a very long time in the Russian economy, almost since 2012 when when Putin returned for his his third term so um, so they might Putin might have restored uh, stability by essentially anointing himself a lifelong leader and removing any political rivals not just via the takeover of the economy but also by kind of uh, ending elections for governors and uh, you know and, and making sure that anyone in opposition was never given any airtime on on 
TV. Uh, of course, that's ushered in stability, but it's now led to this great period of stagnation and now this year, a deep economic recession in which many members of the Russian elite kind of see no future. They don't, don't believe that Putin has any vision uh, for developing the Russian economy and one former government official sighed to me, he said, look, this is what happens when you have uh, KGB men running the country. All they know how to do is, is run block op black operations. All they know how to do is, is to take over cash flows and then use it to uh, these cash flows to preserve their own power and also divert it to try and sow chaos in, in, in countries that they perceive as being their enemy, i.e. The, the West. So unfortunately, that's the juncture that we've reached. Well, Catherine, uh, and also a reminder of uh, the dangers of running a foul Putin's regime. Catherine, thanks for being on the program. Thank you so much for having me on. Catherine Belton, she's the author of Putin's People, How the KGB Took Back Russia and Then Took on the West. Well, that's it for another week of Between the Lines here on RN. I'm Tom Switzer. Hope you can tune in again next time. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.